Well, rather than feeling more like a sermon, today might feel more like sitting in a classroom because we're going to, uh, as students of the Bible, students of the Word, take a, a timeline tour and go back a few um, years and look over some of the things actually in the last couple of weeks that we've talked about to bring us to where we're at today in Genesis chapter 13. Um, let's uh, take just a moment and think through the timeline of the things that we've learned in the last few weeks. If we start out with the timeline of Adam being in Genesis chapter one, uh, Genesis chapter two, and the creation of the world in Genesis chapter one, and move forward in time to Noah in Genesis chapter six, and then keep moving forward in time all the way to Abram, we cover a span of a couple thousand years. And what we've been learning about Abram just in the last three weeks have been really condensed down into about a four-year span of time, from the time that God called. Abram from Haran to the time that he went down into Egypt and then returned in Genesis chapter 13 back into the land of Israel is only four years period of time. There were 15 years from when he was called from the Ur of Chaldees up into Haran, which is northern Iraq, but he didn't respond to God immediately. He stayed in Haran, as you learn, for about 15 years with his dad, and then his dad died. And he left Haran, and he went into what we call today Israel. Or in Scripture, it's called Canaan territory, the land of Canaan, because the Canaanites live there. So today, many times you hear it referred to as Palestine. That's a more recent title that it's been given. Palestine, Canaan, Israel, Zion, the land of promise, they're all the same thing. That same 80-mile by 200-mile strip of land. That was the area that he wandered into, or directly God showed him to go into. But it wasn't until this chapter that we're coming into today that God showed him exactly the area that he intended to give him, the promised territory. We learned last week that it was Abram's lack of an understanding of God's nature and his character and a lack of faith in God that caused him to go down into Egypt because there was famine in the land. And he took more confidence in his ability to lie than he did in the confidence that he had in God. He thought he could lie his way out of a very uncomfortable situation. And now we find him today back in the land of Israel, <clears throat> back as a beginner. Four years he's been there, but he's really starting all over again. Now before we get into that text this morning, I want to share with you a passage from the New Testament in which Jesus was talking to a few of his followers and he was sitting with the disciples and some individuals came to him. In particular, a very wealthy man walked up to him and said, Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus reiterated back to him, following the commandments, honoring your father and mother. And he said, I've done all these since my birth. And so Jesus' response to him was, well, then you have one thing yet to do, which is sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. You might remember the story. The young man, who was very wealthy, turned and walked away because he had great wealth. Now, in Mark 10.22, we pick up that story. It's going to be up on the screen. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. 
But Jesus answered him again, uh, answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. We're going to come back to that passage at the end of the message. I want to tell you how that loops in with Abram, but just set it aside for now. In the school of faith, you probably have learned that you're going to face three specific tests. And we saw the first two played out in the first few chapters that we've looked at so far. The very first one is the test of circumstances. And he failed, Abram failed that first test. The circumstances of the famine in which he was supposed to trust God and he didn't and he went down to Egypt to get away from it. And he failed that test. The second one was the test of people, people in your life. And he failed that one. In trying to protect his wife, he ended up giving her over to Pharaoh and he lied to Pharaoh. So we see this great patriarch having two failures right away in his walk with God. And today we're going to look at the third one, things. And that comes out of chapter 13. Scripture compares the trials and the testing that we go through as like being gold purified in a foundry. As a matter of fact, this is the way Job wrote about it. He said, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Job 23. Meaning when you've been purified. I worked in a foundry when I was in college. I worked during my summers when I was trying to get through flight school. and It was very expensive. So I went for the job where I could earn the most money. And I worked two summers in a row inside a foundry pouring molten steel. It was a miserable job. I don't know if any of you have ever done that, but... Um, man, you talk about heat in July and you're pouring a molten steel and it's already 110 degrees outside and you've got this hot steel splashing up on you. But um, in my first year doing that as an intern, I learned from the guys who had been at it for years that when the steel is poured as a liquid element into the mold, it begins to uh, solidify in the bottom first and all the slag, the bad elements that you don't want, come to the surface. And part of my responsibility was to scrape the slag off from those die castings. And I got burned a lot and a lot of splashing steel all over my skin. I still have scars from it today. And it reminded me of that when I looked at this and it says that we've been tested. We've gone through a fire and we've been purified so that when we're represented to God, we will come out as pure gold, one with no slag on it. And that's what you see happening in the life of Abram. You see him going through this testing period. And what we're watching here, folks, is a purification of a man. The maturation, the maturing process of one who's going to go on to lead a great nation. And God's allowing him to be tested. God knows what we're capable of. God knows already all about us. But we don't know. And it's until we go through the testing process we don't really find out what our metal is like, what our character and our nature. And the testing produces that. Now what you find here is Adam or Abram working on a graduate level degree going through this particular school of faith. He's going through a reverse of his trip down to Egypt. Same trip, only now he's going back up the same road, stopping at the same rest stops as when he went down to Egypt. 
except he has much, much more that he has to account for. This is literally the first cattle drive ever recorded. So let's pick it up in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Something you don't see occurring at all in Genesis chapter 12. An entire two-year span, and it's never recorded once, that Abram called upon God. And now he's back, he recognizes his failure, and he calls upon the name of God. So in verse 3, what we see is a geographical return to the promised land. And in verse 4, you see a spiritual return. Getting down on his knees and saying out to God, I recognize who you are. And it says he's coming up from Egypt because to go from Egypt up into Israel is an incline, a gradual ascent geographically getting up there. And Scripture says that Abram was very rich. Mahod Kabad is the words used there. And it's a very specific word picture I want you to get in your head. A Kabad, specifically, to be heavy in possessions in a good sense, to make weighty, exceedingly heavy. He was loaded. That's where that phrase comes from. He was loaded. Okay, he's got a lot of wealth. He's a powerful influence in this area now. Now, because of what he had inherited by way of his deception with Pharaoh, he received gold, silver, livestock, linens, all the things that we talked about last week. And now he's a very influential man. As a matter of fact, in Arabia at this time, a sheikh, a man who was of average wealth, was considered to be an influence in his area if he had at least between 100 and 200 tents within his household, meaning he had that many servants. And if he had at least a thousand sheep and a thousand goats and an innumerable amount of camels, meaning if it was over a thousand, they didn't bother counting it. Now this word, mahod kabad, means he exceeded that. He was very heavy, very loaded. So wealthier than all the sheiks of his area. He certainly demanded their attention. This is the first mention of wealth in Scripture. And what we're seeing right here is an outplay of the evidence of God's blessing on him. Remember, he came out of Ur of the Chaldees, a non-Christ follower, a non-God follower. Didn't have anything, but God said, I'm going to bless you greatly. And it says, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. He recognizes it's God who's doing all this for him. And everything that happened down in Egypt was a waste of his time. And he's starting all over again. I wonder when it comes to wealth like this, how many family fights have been started because of possessions? You read it in the newspapers all the time. Media publishes reports. Somebody wins an inheritance through uh, their family bestowing upon them, or perhaps they get a landfall of money because they won the lottery, just to find that their friends were not really their friends and their family members were just bitter against them. 
And it leads to the kind of fighting we're about to read about. Let's see how Abram did with this third test with the area of possessions. It involved a lot of wealth, and eventually it involved a lot of land. Verse 5, the test of things. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So abundant was God's blessing. When God said, I'm going to bless you, he really blessed them. An abundance of blessing. So much so that the land can't hold them. Now, when it's speaking about their herdsmen, you understand that this is speaking of the upper-level management servants. The herdsmen are referred to as those who manage the affairs of their master. So this is the management team of Lot fighting against the management team of Abram. And they're striving because they want the best for their master, the best land possible available. And these supervisors are watching this take place. Now, what I want you to understand is there's a maturation process taking place here. Now, it refers specifically to this little detail. The Canaanite and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Canaanite meaning the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. The Perizzites are one of the subcultures. And the Perizzites, unfortunately, they were the pagan, most pagan part of the culture. They were rude, unsociable, and they were very violent people. The very kind of people that God would want to win over. What do you think they thought when they saw the herdsmen fighting like this? The upper level management struggling. Not a very good witness to them. Now look in verse 8 on how the maturing Abraham handles this. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Abram, being the superior family member, had the right to demand that Lot would do such and such. He could say, Lot, you return to Egypt. Or Lot, you go back to Ur. And Lot would have had to respond because of their culture. But being the superior individual... He's maturing along. This is what he's doing. He's not attaching his future success to his strategies. This is a really important element to understand. Down in Egypt, he attached his success and his survival to his ability to manipulate. He lied to Pharaoh. He tried to change things so that he could succeed and be protected. Here, he's willingly stepping back and saying, you take the very best. There's a great difference between someone who has riches that possess them and someone who has riches and they possess the wealth. You see the difference? Lot's wealth possessed him, as you're about to discover. Abram possessed his wealth, but it didn't possess him. He's practicing a New Testament philosophy that Jesus taught. Philippians 2.4 says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. He's not trying to manipulate. He's exhibiting wisdom here. 
senior in years, superior in possessions. This is a man who walks and talks with God. He could have demanded his own way, but he says, you take the best and I'll take the leftovers. Understand this is a usual way of speaking in the Middle East. When he says, you go to the right and I'll go to the left, or you go to the left and I'll go to the right, this is not uncommon conversational language for them in the Middle East at this time. When we think of going to the left, we think of going west, to the left coast. And we think of going to the right, we think of going to the east if we're facing the north. But for the Middle Eastern person, they're always thinking in terms of where the sun rises, thinking of the east. So when he says, you can go to the left and I'll go to the right, you go to the north and I'll go to the south, or if you go to the south, I'll go to the north. That's what he's encouraging him to do. And they're standing on a very tall hill. So what happens with Lot? Verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zor. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Verse 12, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, Israel, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Instead of lifting his eyes up like his uncle would, all the way to heaven, saying, God, what do you want me to do? Lot lifted his eyes up as far as what he could see right in front of him, the Jordan Valley. And it was spectacular. It was not Lot's choice that led his heart astray. His heart was already there. If you know anything about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, he'd already made this choice internally. And his eyes saw it, and he wanted to go there. He immediately accepted Abram's proposal. There's no argument or debate taking place. Now, Scripture gives us this detail. It's very important to pay attention to this. This is before the wrath of God. Now, we're not going to get into the descriptions of what take place in chapter 19 yet. That's for later in a few weeks coming up in what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. But take a look at what that area looks like today. Take a good look at that. I don't know if there's any place on earth that is more desolate and devastated than the area around the Dead Sea. Take a look at what it might have looked like when Lot saw it. A lush valley. Scripture says, before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, like the Garden of Eden, like Egypt. It says very specifically, like Egypt, because Egypt was associated with the Nile Delta. A lush vegetation, trees growing all over the place. Green, great for pasture land. Because of good pasture and plenty of water, this was an excellent choice from a worldly point of view. This is the place you wanted to be. But either Lot made this choice because he was ignorant and didn't know about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, or the temptation was too great and he was not a man of God. It didn't chase after the things of God at this point in his life. And so he went in there. Now look at what 13 says about Sodom. 
Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. If you have the King James Version of the Bible, it says sinners before the Lord. This is the exact same phraseology used about men in the time of Noah before the destruction of the earth. So you can see that it's building towards something. Now notice the progression of sin in the life of Lot. In verse 10, he looked. In verse 11, he desired. In verse 12, he moved near. And if you go to chapter 14 and verse 11, it says he actually moved into the city. And if you go all the way to chapter 19, it says he sat at the gate and became an elder, a leader in the city. This is what Josephus, an extra-biblical source, a historian, writes about the people of this region, a five-city region. Sodom and Gomorrah were just two of five cities that were considered wicked to be destroyed. This is what Josephus writes. They are guilty of the most notorious crimes and addicted to the worst that can be thought of. They committed openly and publicly in the sight of God the most daring manner of sin in defiance of God without any fear of shame or reproach. Now, if you go to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah compares the people of Sodom to the wickedness that took place in Israel at his time. It says, They display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Just as an aside, when Jesus sat in Capernaum, and he said, Woe unto you, Capernaum, for if the miracles that had been done in your presence had been done in Sodom, they would have repented. How much more severe will your punishment be in the day of judgment than that of the people of the city of Sodom? Jesus said, you have the evidence that I'm the Son of God, and yet you willingly walk away from me. And we know what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Pretty powerful imagery. Now, that was just an aside. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. This was language that was familiar to Abram. Northward didn't mean as far north as you can see. It meant to the uppermost reaches of the border that I will show you. Eastward meant as far as the sun rises. Westward meant as far as the banks of the Mediterranean Sea. And southward meant all the way down to the border of Egypt. And you see this promise later in Scripture. God wasn't just saying the horizon, what you can see. I'm going to bless you multiplication upon multiplication. And I want you to get up and I want you to walk about it. Now this is a huge promise to make to a man of this age. Here, if you get nothing else out of this message today, and I want you to remember this next part that we're coming to. God used a phrase here that's only used four times in all of Scripture. Let me read the passage to you again. Verse 14 says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes. Now is the word na'ah. Say that with me. 
Naah. Naah. Kind of like when a child is on the playground and somebody says something to him that he doesn't believe and the kid says, Naah. That's impossible. Naah. You get the imagery in your mind? God's saying, here's something that's impossible. This is a word that's used that's an action intensive, it's called, as you interpret Scripture. Look at the definition behind it. A prime, I, really, I know this feels like a classroom, especially for your students that have been in class all week and you don't want to do this, but get this and take it back to your teachers with you, okay? A primitive particle of enticement and entreaty added mostly to verbs in the imperative or in the future, occasionally to an adverb or a conjunction, I beseech you, God is saying, Abram, trust me on this. I know it seems big. Trust me on this. I know it doesn't seem like something you can do. Trust me, it's something only God can do. So whenever this word, na'ah, is used, it's an intensive word that means something you can't do, only God can do. And I want to give you four references to this. This is, this is the four times that it occurs in Scripture. Exodus 11, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And after that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Nah, speak now in the hearing of the people. And this is when he told them to go to them and obtain all their jewelry and possessions from the Egyptians. This is something God's saying, you can't do. I'm going to cause it to happen. Speak now in the hearing of the people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Genesis 22, it occurs again. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Remember, he's going through the trial. And said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, Naah, trust me, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. When people read that, they say, how could he have responded so quickly? Abram had been through this walk, and God's saying, Naah, trust me. Third time, Genesis 13. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Naah, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. You wonder why the war is so big in the Middle East? This is where it roots. And lastly, Genesis 15, this is the fourth time. And he took him outside and said, Now look, na'ah, toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. I don't know how much you know about Old Testament history and the Scriptures being fulfilled. But there's a passage that talks about some of this being fulfilled, although all of it is not yet fulfilled. 
It's coming. It's more prophecy. But listen to this description in the reign of King Solomon and see if you see Naah, God at work. 1 Kings 4.20 Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines, meaning from the river Euphrates all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now you want to see abundance, God's blessing, when you obey him? Look at this. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores, 1 to 10 bushel, of fine flour and 60 core of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over everything west of the river, from Tipsha even to Gaza, over all the kings west of the river, and he had peace on all sides round about him. So Judah and Israel lived in safety, every man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Did God make good on his promise? When God makes a commitment and he says, I will do this, you can bet it will come to pass. This is just a portion of the promise. And the promise is for the future as well as for the present. Now wrapping this up in verse 16. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Verse 18. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Another altar, once again. That's quite a promise to a man who's childless and in his 80s. God wants Abram to get up and walk about the land because in this time, the way a man possessed land was by walking through it and surveying it. And he walked as far as he could, 200 miles to the north and south, 80 miles to the east and west, and said, this is the land. Now, how does all this loop in with Mark chapter 10 and Jesus sitting with all these people and saying, it's more difficult for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. In tradition of Middle Eastern cities, they built walled gates around the city. And they had the very large gates in the middle of the walls. And at night, at sunset, they would close the large doors by which they did trade. But they always left one door open, a small door, only of about six feet high. And in order for nighttime travelers to get in, they had to come to this door and knock. The keeper of the gate would open the door and allow the men to come in through this door. And if they wanted their camels and their livestock to come with them to be protected, the camel had to get down on his knees and hump through the door removing the pack off his back. That door is called the eye of the needle. 
the eye of the needle was very, very difficult for a camel to get through because he had to be down on his elbows, down on his knees, and shuffle his way through. And none of his possessions could be on him. They had to remove the heavy load and set it aside. The Mahod Kabad, the great possessions. But Jesus follows it up with another point, and he says, they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Because they knew how difficult that was. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but with God, naah, all things are possible with God. The disciples knew immediately what that was referring to. All the things that God had done through the history of them as a nation, all his ability to deliver, naah, God can do it in your life personally. Only through God, though, he makes all things possible. It's interesting that they have to set their baggage aside. That's what he calls you to do. Set aside all those things that you bring to the table. Because frankly, you don't bring anything. That's why communion is so humbling for me. I realize how unworthy I am. I have to set everything aside and just say, God, I bring nothing except mistakes. And you, through Jesus, have made me holy. And you say, remember what I did for you. What is impossible with man, naah, is possible through me. It's powerful. Would you bow with me? Father, time has flown by and we find ourselves at the end of another session of uh, being able to fellowship and learn and, and grow in knowledge of your word and sing and worship. We ask that you would take this time and bless it and use it to the advancement of your kingdom. God, we ask confidently that you make us bolder and better defenders of the faith because we understand what you're calling us to. So tomorrow when we're busy about our business and the next day, help us to remember these truths. The things that we don't think we can accomplish, we can't. But you can and we can do it through you because you empower us with your spirit. God, make us bold for you. I ask that more than anything. Give us the confidence to represent you well. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.